Don't we just dismiss epidemiology because there are questions that you can't ask with randomized controlled trials. You can't ask if smoking leads to lung cancer over 30 or 40 years with a randomized control trial because you can't randomize people to smoke and then follow them for 30 years. It's just, it's just not doable, right? Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Hello, my friends. Welcome back. Great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. In my career, I've worked with many people, including elite professional athletes, to improve their health, performance, and longevity. And I'm currently involved in research with a group of nutrition scientists in Australia looking at dietary patterns and mental health. Today I sit down with Dr. Gil Carvalho, or Gil as many know him by. He's a physician, research scientist, science communicator, speaker, and writer. He trained as a medical doctor at the University of Lisbon and later obtained a PhD in biology. Gil has published peer-reviewed medical research spanning the fields of genetics, molecular biology, nutrition, behavior, aging, and neuroscience, and has a really wonderful YouTube channel called Nutrition Made Simple, where he goes through regular points of confusion and is able to discuss quite sophisticated and nuanced information in what I think is a very accessible and empowering manner. In this conversation, we focus less on what to think and more on how to think about the science of human nutrition. In particular, we cover Gill's framework, the three Ps that he uses to evaluate evidence and dispel confusion. And then we walk through a few examples using this framework, including cooking oils and red meat. If you're wanting to improve your ability to think about nutrition research and come to well-informed positions, or are just simply interested in hearing how a highly regarded research scientist thinks and evaluates evidence, then I'm sure there's a lot that you'll take from this episode. Please do enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. 
And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Welcome to the show, Gil. It's uh, been a long time coming this one, I think probably years in the making. So I'm certainly super excited to have you on and, and get the chance to, to share your wisdom with the listeners. Thank you, man. It's a pleasure. I've got to say uh, at the outset here, over the years, the, the sort of list of, of health professionals who I refer people to when they ask me answers to certain questions that I perhaps don't have on hand or haven't covered in detail, that list has become more and more refined over time. But you are, are certainly right up there at the top of that list as one of the sources of information that I just have so much respect for. I love the way that you think about science. I love the way that you communicate it. So I guess I just wanted to start this conversation by thanking you for all of your work and the example you said. It's really inspiring. And I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I'm just learning as I go along and trying to get better at communicating science. We we unfortunately don't get a lot of background, a lot of training in that in that area when we either medical school or grad school. It's all this kind of like talking to other specialists and uh, this arcane mode of speech, right? It doesn't lend itself very well to talking to the public. And so I have to say it's, it's been another, almost like a, another road of learning on top of like the, the basic science, uh, learning how to, how to communicate with people, how to break things down. Uh, they say that teaching is learning twice, right? And it's, I've really found that a lot of times I'll start making a video and I think I understand the topic. And then it's, it'll go through so many iterations and so many like uh, versions because we keep looking at the video and going, this is not simple enough. It's still too convoluted. Let's break this down more. And by the end, I end up having to look into a lot of details and, and really consolidate things in my mind. And I end up understanding the topic better by making the videos than I thought I did in the beginning. So it's really... It's a two. It's a two-way. It's problem. so true. It's so true. Yeah, uh, you know, it's a way to stress test your understanding of a topic. How well can you explain it to someone who doesn't have any real background knowledge about that topic? Uh, you mentioned road, and your sort of road or journey background is somewhat unique. You, you're a medical doctor and a scientist, an MD and a PhD. So you have this this uh, beautiful blend of clinical experience, but also experience with data and, and making sense of evidence. 
walk me through this journey of yours. So how, how did all of that kind of unfold and, and come about? I started out wanting to go into medicine and uh, the clinical side. And this is, I, I spent my, my teens in, uh, in Portugal. And here you start medical school right after high school. So you're like 18 when you start uh, basically functioning out almost as a doctor in the hospital. So you're very young. And throughout medical school, uh, you know, my, my mind changed a number of times and you, you mature, you change your mind. And I ended up deciding towards the end that I wanted to get a, a more robust background in, in the science itself and do research into all these different topics. And so I, I then applied to, and went and got into to grad school. And that's when I moved to the U.S. I went to Caltech in the L.A. area and spent another several years doing research full time. Uh, and then after that, I, you know, I, I, did a, I did research for another number of years. Overall, I've been doing research for maybe like close to 20 years now, full time, basically all my, my adult life uh, after, after med school. And then after that was the kind of the third chapter, which was, I think, think everything came together very nicely when I ended up blending all those backgrounds together like I want I love interacting with people. And so the research, just the research, I lacked the human side. Uh, and then just the medicine, I lacked more the research and the hardcore, like hyper nerdy side of researching something in depth, right? And really figuring out those details. So the science communication thing that I now devote most of my time to ended up blending all those things together very nicely. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, I think it's a good fit for me, but uh, I'll let the audience be the judge of that. So the science that you were originally sort of interested in and involved with was more biomedical science. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I initially was I was interested in aging, so the biology of aging, biogerontology, mm -hmm. and that's what I did. My PhD started out with an interest in, in in the biology of aging, the mechanisms, the genetics, and the biochemistry of the aging process using model organisms, basically lab animals, right? Uh, and we used a lot of insects, a lot of fruit flies, uh, some worms and stuff. And, and then because aging is connected to food, a lot of the interventions that have been shown to extend lifespan all the, are related to nutrition and nutrient sensing pathways. A lot of the work we did was related to foods and different nutrients and how different nutrients affect physiology and how they extend or shorten life. This was, this was a daily uh, discussion in the in the lab, and so we ended up doing a lot of stuff on nutrition, on that mechanistic side of nutrition with model organisms, and a lot of my PhD ended up being the thesis, and everything ended up being nutritional effects on different phys physiological aspects and 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 aging lifespan. Uh, that was yeah, that was the background. Then I then I fused that with the human side. Obviously, my 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 interest in human in the you know in the human biology coming from medical school. I always had in mind the the application to humans uh, of all this 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 uh, these these basic mechanisms that we were uncovering. Mm. Do you do you find that you can just take your approach to science from that sort of more deeper biology kind of level, and it just translates perfectly to nutrition science, or are there some some stark differences that? you you really had to go away and learn in order to make sense of of nutrition science 
um, which uh, you can speak to, but obviously has, of course, some some fairly large differences in terms of the the way science is conducted and what you can and cannot sort of um, ask and and the answers you can get. Foundation is the same. The basic principles are the same. And then there's an aspect of specificity to the to the field, which I think happens in any field. And with nutrition, I don't think that's an exception. There are there are certainly there's certainly a lot of knowledge that comes specifically from studying nutrition. Uh, so I, I think it all sits on a, on a foundation of, of just scientific interpretation and scientific background. But yes, you, I mean, I have lots of colleagues that do other things and nutrition confuses them almost as much as sometimes more than, than your average layperson. So yeah, you do, you do need both the, the background, just the, the kind of the backbones, right? The structure where then the, the specific knowledge sits. Uh, and you do need that specific knowledge because otherwise it would be like me trying to understand, you know, cancer biology or, or even another field of, of, of science like astronomy or physics. It would take me a long time to get up to speed. That's just, that's just the way it is. So you mentioned confusion there. And today you spend quite a bit of time putting together these videos on YouTube discussing common areas of confusion when it comes to nutrition and dispelling myths by showing people uh, how to think, not just what to think, which is where I kind of want to start this conversation, how you think as someone reviewing science and, and the sort of framework or system that you use for appraising scientific evidence and dispelling confusion and in, in talking to you, I, I know that you've simplified this into a kind of three P's system. And I thought perhaps here you could walk us through this, uh, why you think it's important that we're thinking about how we form our views. Uh, and then that can kind of set us up for the remainder of the conversation where we jump into a few of these specific points of confusion that come up time and time again. I love that you said the how and not just the what, right? I think about that all the time. And I I think that was the motivating factor for me to start making videos and publish them. And I often think, I sometimes I've said that in videos before, but the point of the, of the videos, ostensibly it's about nutrition, but the reality is that they're about critical thinking and how to figure out how to navigate through a confusing world of, of seemingly conflict, uh, contradictory information. And this, I've often thought that uh, the, the channel could have been about many other fields of research. I did neuroscience for seven or eight years uh, as a research scientist, and it could have been about neuroscience. It could be. It could have been on genetics. Uh, it ended up being on nutrition because I'm, I have a personal interest in it. I have some background in it, and it's something that I think the application is very important to people. But the what the vid the videos are really about for me is the how. Is that per, that, that heuristic process? And I think, I mean, this couldn't be more topical, right? We are in the middle of a tsunami of this, this, this discussion is, is like now the, the, we're in the middle of it with all the, the Joe Rogan controversies, mm -hmm. the, um, you know, the infodemic, the, the, the pandemic or disinform, disinformation, all of these controversies. 
and it's not specific to the virus. Obviously, the virus brought this all to the surface, but we were, we were seeing this with vaccines mm-hmm. before. We were seeing this with climate change. We know that this is a daily reality with nutrition. And so I think the general um, mental hygiene of being able to navigate a question and find reliable information and answers is a crucial life skill nowadays Mm. that applies to all of these different fields. And so to to specifically address this, so we were talking about this, we were just shooting the breeze Mm. about these different questions and what we could, uh, how we could bring value to people. And I think the thought process is that people who have a scientific training and a, and a, a system of critical thinking are much less prone to confusion when, when exposed to certain types of content. Like if you or I watch a video by somebody just making outlandish claims on nutrition, it's much harder to confuse you or me. Mm. And that's not because we are smarter. It's not, it's not even because we have a scientific background per se. It's that we have a certain way of thinking that breaks down the arguments that are being made and then a certain a posteriori process of fact-checking. And so I've been thinking about this for a long time. How can we break this down and distill the essential principles so that anybody with, without scientific training can do this and can hit the key buttons mm. to spend you know years uh, digging and reading every paper on earth? So this simple system that we came up with uh, we call it the, the three P's of fact-checking or the three P's of uh, information, cl- clarity, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the first P stands for proof. And that's kind of self-explanatory. But basically, it's a very important realization that the burden of proof is with the person making the claim. Crucial. People, people contact me every day with videos or blogs or posts that they say they're very confused by. And a lot of times it's a claim with no evidence to back it up. Right. Do you have an example, have an example of, of, of some sort of claim that could be made uh, that, that uh, is related to this? I mean, this happens all the, 10 times a day. So from lectins will kill you. So you shouldn't eat beans to, um, whole grains are toxic because of something that happens in the gut to, um, you know, some stuff with the vaccines and, and the, and the pandemic and COVID, uh, you know, don't, don't take the vaccine because it will increase your risk of getting sick. It will spread. It's the, the vaccinated people that are spreading the disease. There are, there are countless examples of claims that are made that confuse people mm-hmm. that don't even have, that are unaccompanied by evidence. Right? And so the first step of proof is just that mindset shift of a claim without evidence. I mean, I might as well be reading Harry Potter, right? It's, it's like talking about my favorite mm-hmm. color. It's like sitting there and going, my favorite color is blue. Cool. Mine is green, whatever. Right? It has, you have to show evidence. It's not on the person receiving the, the message to then go, go fact check what you're saying just to find out if, if it's evidence-based or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Even though this sounds very obvious, it, the truth is it disqualifies automatic DQ on like 90% of the content out there that seems very confusing to people. To people. So to make this clearer, what does proof look like? Normally, it's going to be a peer-reviewed study in a medical journal. Not always. If you're, if, you're, if you're citing a statistic, for example, right, it could be 
a reputable website. It could be a poll. It could be a, uh, some sort of the, uh, some source of, of that of that number, that stat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but most of the time, it's going to be a published, peer reviewed source. Those aren't perfect, as we know. Uh, but mm-hmm. that's where the other the, the rest of the piece come in. But it's a start. It's reliable. It's a we're in the we're in a terrain where we can start working. We, we can start talking about it. We can start the conversation. Conversely, some things that are often brought up to, to validate these claims that are not proof. Anecdotes are not proof. You know, if I, you know, if I, my, I stop eating food X Y Z and I now feel better. I have, my health improved. That's not proof. We can go into the whys, but there's a lot of factors around anecdotes. Um, mm-hmm. Founders, like there's a many, many things that usually many variables. There's no way to control for those variables. There's placebo effect. There's a thousand th- reasons why an anecdote is not a compelling. Uh, it doesn't mean the anecdote is irrelevant for, for the person experiencing it. Experiencing can, we, it. Can, we, can we pause on that for one, one second? You mentioned there, there's no way of controlling for variables. Can you just break that down? I think that's a, a, a really important point for people to understand when it comes to anecdotes. Most of the time, when somebody tries to, to make a point that they eliminated a certain food, this happens all the time on social media. You'll post a study... Uh, showing benefit or showing harm of certain food, and somebody will disagree and say, well, actually, in my experience, I eliminated that food and I felt better. Or I eliminated that food and I I added that food and I felt worse. And the problem with that, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It could be right. There's a a few problems. One is that it doesn't necessarily reflect what happens to the majority of people. If I'm allergic to strawberries, I could have a really bad reaction to them. doesn't mean that they're harmful for humans, so we have to be very careful with the extrapolation, right? The anecdote could be correct and yet not be informative for the majority of people. Mm-hmm. The problem is the confounders. Normally, people are talking about a change, a dietary change that happened over medium to long term, but there are a number of changes happening, happening in that person's life. They changed a lot of other things around their diet. They changed maybe their... Uh, their exercise, they changed, uh, you know, stress levels, all of these things. Uh, the problem is when you do, when you run a, a scientific experiment, you're trying to isolate the variable, meaning you're trying to keep all the other factors as constant as you can. With the anecdote, by definition, you can't do that. You can't isolate the variable so that you can have reasonable um a reasonable basis to infer causality, right? To infer that there's cause and effect that cause and effect that variable and something else. I can give you a, a, con- a concrete example that happens all the time. Uh, when we post uh, a study showing benefit of liquid vegetable oil, there's now this 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 uh, this huge movement of oil is is harmful. It's toxic. Some people refer to it as seed oil. Basically, liquid vegetable oils, non, not, not olive oil, but all the others, sesame oil, canola, mm-hmm. sunflower, flour. Mm-hmm. I or one of us posts a study showing some benefit of these oils. Somebody will pop up and say, well, actually, I removed seed oils from my diet and I, my health is much better now. And usually when you dig into that and ask, ask follow-up questions, what they did was they removed ultra-processed foods, junk foods, right? They lost weight, their, their health, health improved, and then they back rationalized that because uh, seed oils are a common component of many of these foods, then they ascribed kind of arbitrarily the blame on that nutrient. 
I don't think we need, we need to spend too much time uh, uh, debunking that. I think most people see through that argument. And if you don't, you could just flip it to a food that you don't care about, that you have no emotional feelings towards, and you will immediately see the problem, right? You could, you could just as, as well hypothesize that it was protein, because protein is included in most ultra-processed foods, or some mineral that is in most ultra-processed foods, or water, which is in probably 100% of ultra-processed foods, right? So it's a logical leap from a constellation of changes to pointing to one change, often coming from information that people are receiving from podcasts or from, from blogs or mm-hmm. that they then fuse their experience with these ideas that they're getting and they arbitrarily po- focus on one element among 300 elements that change, right? So it's, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just very unreliable heuristic process, very confusing. Does that make sense? Yeah cool. yeah, cool. So you were listing off what what is proof, and you were you were essentially reeling off things that are not technically proof, and you were sort of working towards what what is proof. If we're saying that that first P is okay, someone's made a claim. What is the proof? Well, what do we mean by proof? So yeah, examples of things that will often be brought up, but that are not really compelling uh, anecdotes. Uh, another one I see. This one's a little more gray. Uh, saying that a food is a, is a source of nutrient X, and this this goes both this goes both ways. It's used to condemn a food. Sometimes it's used to recommend a food. And the, the reason I say it's more gray is that this isn't necessarily. This could be evidence based, and it could be could be reasonable, but it gets used and abused. And so, what I would alert to is people be cautious when that is the essence of the argument. The only the pillar of the argument is that the food contains nutrient X. Again, it doesn't have to be wrong, but just just perk up your ears, right? Um, if there is no – the reason – I mean, we both know that the, the, the type of evidence that you want to be looking for is what we call outcome evidence, mm-hmm. actual health effects of eating a certain food or not eating it or eating higher amounts versus lower amounts. This is, this is what you want to base your beliefs on in your, in your choices. Mm-hmm. Arguments like, well, this food contains this vitamin or this food contains that nutrient, so we shouldn't eat it. A lot of times those are misleading and, and can be completely, completely mm-hmm. uh, with regards to the out- mm-hmm. outcome evidence. So just a little bit of caution is what I'm, what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that almost comes back to understanding uh, the sort of hierarchy of evidence and so, it, you know, that, that that becomes a little reductionist if you point to a food and you say, look, this food is, and I'm just making this up off the top of my head, is a great source of protein. But that food is associated with increased risk of cancer or increased risk of cardiovascular disease. You're, you're sort of, um, you know, missing the forest for the trees there. Great segue. That's the next P. We'll just jump to the next P, which is exactly, uh, stands for pyramid. And it's precisely referring to hierarchy of evidence. Uh, because once we go past that first barrier of proof and we have some proof shown, proof is not all, evidence is not all created equal. So all studies are, do not weigh the same. And so hierarchy of evidence, if you go on Google Images and you, and you Google that term, you'll see a lot of pyramids because that's usually how it's represented. And the way it usually looks is that at the bottom, the lowest rung, 
uh, is usually mechanistic evidence, and that's things like experiments in uh, animal in lab animals or cell culture or test tubes. So things that are not in humans, they're in surrogate systems, so-called surrogate systems. Above that, you'll have, then, then we get into the human experiments, uh, not necessarily experiment, but the human data, let's call it. And the lowest rungs of that are usually either ecological data, just kind of looking at a tribe somewhere or a population somewhere. Then you have case control studies. Uh, and then you get into the higher level evidence that is more robust, the... Um, the cohort studies, uh, the so-called epidemiology, even though epidemiology is a, is a large umbrella, but the, the prospective studies. Um, and then above that, you have the randomized control trials. And then above that, you have the large collections of data, the meta-analyses and the, um, the systematic reviews. Uh, another way, if, if this is too complicated for some people, we made a video, we wanted to make this even simpler. And so we made a video where we just showed people three bags, three bags of evidence. The first bag was mechanistic studies. So basically all the, the lab stuff and animals and test tube. The second bag was the prospective studies, the epidemiology, the observational studies. And the third bag was clinical trials. And that's an order of, of, of weight, let's call it. Mm -hmm. In reality, it's a bit, it's a bit more nuanced and more complex than that. Uh, because a lot of times the questions you're asking with the epidemiology and the, the trials, it's not the same question. It's a complementary question. So really what you want to do, rather than this simplistic, we see a lot of this a lot on the internet. People dismiss entire swaths of evidence and entire fields and entire experimental approaches. The reality, we look at everything, right? We look at totality of evidence, but then you need a system to rank it. Some things weigh more than others. So that's this idea of the pyramid and or the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So the, how would someone apply this to their daily life? If you see a, a surprising claim on the internet, uh, is there proof? That's the first P. Second P, you want to walk your way to the top of the pyramid or to the heavier bags. So if, you sh if you're shown a, a study in mice, okay, that's interesting data. We don't dismiss that. We don't pretend it doesn't exist. But we ask, cool, is there anything in humans? Does it align with that? If you're shown a study in humans, that is observational, a prospective study, uh, an epidemiological study. You go, cool, interesting data. Are there any, any clinical trials on, on this question or a complementary question, a related question? Do those things generally align? If you're shown a, a, mm -hmm. a, a single clinical trial, you can ask, is there a meta-analysis of trials? Does it point in the same direction, right? So it's this idea of, of walking towards more reliable mm -hmm. data. I think the the point you made about dismissing certain types of of research, uh, large sort of chunks of, of research, is really important here, because often depending on on which sort of diet tribe or circle um, you you might be caught up in, you you might think about applying that pyramid, but then come across people saying well, actually, this mechanistic study is more reliable because observational research is A, B, C, D, and, and they'll reel off um, their views of observational uh, research and, and why it should um, not be seen as, as valid. So if you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, 
you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Do you, do you want to quickly sort of cover, you mentioned there that observational and randomized controlled trials are complementary. Um, why are why are both of these forms of studies important and what are some of the important things for people to be aware of when thinking about these studies? The one thing, the, the, the two most common mistakes I see with epidemiology in uh, the internet discourse are one, giving it too much weight and two, not giving it enough. And I, we see these all the time. And interestingly, a lot of times the same person is making both just on different days. So we see this all the time. People, uh, an inconvenient epidemiological study is dismissed because epidemiology is weak. And then a week later, an epidemiological study that supports the belief is touted because it supports the belief, right? So we want to be very careful. It's a natural human tendency. We all have that bug in us to, to favor the data we like, but we have, we have to be very careful with that and try to be as consistent as possible with the heuristics. So why don't we just dismiss epidemiology? Because there are questions that you can't ask with randomized controlled trials. 
You can't ask if smoking leads to lung cancer over 30 or 40 years with a randomized control trial because you can't randomize people to smoke and then follow them for 30 years. It's just, it's just not doable, right? Uh, and trans fats, another example that also comes from epidemiology. There are many findings, trans fats and cardiovascular disease, right? That connection. There are many findings and many things that, that we not take for granted as causal even that either started with epidemiology or to this day, it's are largely rooted in epidemiological findings. Um, so they're complementary because the, the, the general idea on the internet and certain circles of the internet is that epidemiology is useless and randomized control trials are this perfect experiment framed in gold and, you know, and the Hall of Fame. Both of those are misconceptions. The, the reality is epidemiology is extremely important and useful, but it has blind spots. So that's why we interpret epidemiology in context of the totality of evidence. You don't do a logical leap from an observational study in, in the vacuum to, okay, there's, there's causal relationship. That's a mistake. But the same is true about uh, RCTs. They have lots of blind spots and caveats, uh, especially when you get into nutrition, for example. The longer the RCT, the more it looks like an epidemiological study. The more you have to rely on what people tell you they eat, for example. One of the, one of the problems that's pointed out, one of the caveats of epidemiology, right? The relying on self-reports, the, the food frequency questionnaires. Well, when you're looking at a randomized control trial that goes on for years, you have to rely on what people tell you they eat. With some exceptions, historical exceptions, where people are trapped in a certain place in mental hospitals or something. There are some examples like that. But in general, most RCTs that are not a month or two long, that are longer, you still have to tell people what to eat, but then you have to, you have to ask them, are you eating what I told you to eat? And you have to rely on their report. Sometimes there are other mechanisms you can measure serum markers and try to correlate, but you can do that with epidemiology as well. The point is just that no experiment is perfect and, mm -hmm. and things cover for each other's blind spots. Just like a randomized control trial isn't really doable for 20 years, by and large, um, the epidemiology covers that. With the RCT, you're typically limited with the sample size. The epidemiology is very good at that, but then the epidemiology has some weaknesses, and that's where the RCT is strongest. So it's like using, mm -hmm. you know, you don't, you don't use a hammer exclusively to build a house. You use different tools depending on the exact task at hand. Mm -hmm. You look at all of the evidence and where these different experimental approaches align, where they give you generally an answer in the same direction, that's where our confidence is strongest. That's where we start to think it's a fundamental fact of nutrition or public health or whatever it may be. Something that, that comes to mind here that I often see is this, this idea that correlation is not important and that with epidemiology, there are so many variables at play that, you know, this, this relationship could be due to something other than the kind of exposure that we're looking at. Uh, and you mentioned there that epidemiology does have certain limitations, but what is it, you know, researchers uh, that are conducting this type of study are aware of those limitations. What, what are they doing to try and mitigate um, 
some of the effect that other variables other than what you're looking at could have on the the data so just a note on the correlation because this is thrown around a lot correlation does not equal causation mm-hmm. mice control trial you're also looking at a correlation it's a correlation between being in the in the intervention group and having a certain outcome the fundamental difference is not the correlation the fundamental difference is that in the randomized control trial, in theory, you are controlling for more variables and you have one thing that changes. In theory, in nutrition, it ends up rarely being the case because it's very difficult to to run a a placebo-controlled food experiment. Some exist in the literature, but that's not the norm, right? The norm is a a replacement. And so you already have uh, some issues there. You're replacing something. So is it the thing you removed or is it, is it the thing that that display, that uh, that you introduced? People know generally what you changed. Again, there are there are exceptions, but in general, in nutritional experiments, people can tell that it's not the same food. So are there psychological aspects? If you're giving somebody a healthier diet, are they going to go exercise more because they now feel feel galvanized and feel you know encouraged by their their that this partial healthier change? Is that going to motivate them to go exercise more, stress less, smoke less? All possibilities, right? So, um, to to um, to your point that the investigators are the people who are the most familiar with these shortcomings. I talk to people who run RCTs for a living, and they understand that these are concerns. And I talk to people who do uh, observational studies for a living, and they better than anyone understands the limitations. So some of the ways you can get around it, uh, you can do multivariate analysis, right? You can try to statistically adjust for differences, things that could be potential confounders or um, or, or different mediators. Uh, so, for example, if we're looking at uh, two populations that eat more of something and less of something, and if they also happen to one happens to smoke more, the other happens to smoke less, you're going to introduce that into your statistical model. You, so you typically in these studies you have the raw data, and then you have a number of models that introduce that adjust for 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 increasing numbers of, of variables. And in the last model, often it's model number three, you adjust for the most. And this is one way that you can distinguish a higher quality, more robust study is the number of of, of factors that they introduce into their multivariate analysis because a robust study that's worth its salt is going to adjust in nutrition particularly. It's going to adjust for 10, 15, 20 factors, right? It's going to adjust for smoking, just for BMI and sex and age and geographical location and socioeconomic uh, differences in education and other dietary differences aside from the thing you're testing, other diseases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one mechanism of of, uh, confirmation. At the end of the day, the best mechanism of confirmation, and this goes for all of science, is reproducibility. Reproducibility within an experimental approach, you want to see that result reproduced by different teams of, of, of scientists across different institutions, across different countries, across different cultures, and that's when you know this is probably something robust. And you want to see it reproduced across disciplines, across experimental approaches, right? That's what we're talking about with the, the totality of the evidence. So when you see the same General, the arrow is pointing in the same general direction, whether you're looking at epidemiology, whether you're looking at RCTs, 
whether you're looking at mechanisms, whether you're looking at uh, different types of, of epidemiological, of observational, or different types of RCTs, you consistently keep getting an answer. That's the highest level of confidence. So that's that's what it's all shooting for. And, and was that the third P? So you've got proof, you've got yeah, the pyramid. So the so we got proof, pyramid. The third P is preponderance. Preponderance. There we go. Proof, pyramid, preponderance. So uh, before we move on to some examples and, and we can kind of walk through this system and, and apply it, which I think will be really instructive. One of the question I, I have about epidemiology, and this often comes up, I, I see uh, you mentioned smoking, and I see people comparing uh, nutrition epidemiology to smoking and saying, well, how about we look at the actual risk? And this sort of brings me to, I guess, how we think about risk. And, and often people are saying, well, the sort of relative risk in these nutrition studies is so, so small. It's so much smaller than smoking that when you factor in that there's likely to be some, some other variables that could be at play here, um, is this really meaningful? Do you have a, a kind of view on that? It's a valid point, but it's, uh, it misses the, the big picture. It is true that if you're looking at that many studies in epidemiology, the, 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 more, new, the, more, uh, um, the more detailed you get with the epidemiological approach, typically the smaller the effect will be. So if you're just asking, um, do people eat more or less, do people drink more or less milk? Right? You're trying to isolate that one question. And you have all of these other very all of these other moving pieces nutritionally that you're trying to isolate. So you wouldn't expect that to be this five-fold, ten-fold difference in, in uh, outcomes from a single food. The comparison to tobacco, it, it's not really a parallel because you're comparing somebody who smokes to somebody who doesn't smoke. And here you're not comparing an entire dietary pattern versus another completely different dietary pattern. That would be a more a, a more a fairer comparison. So mm -hmm. the more specific the question, usually the narrower, the, the, the less dramatic the effect is going to be. If you look, for example, at dietary, the effect of dietary patterns, I mean, I can give you examples. The Lyon Heart Study saw a 50 to 70% reduction in CVD. That's over twofold reduction in cardiovascular disease, number one cause of death in the world. So, yeah, because they're looking at an entire dietary pattern, right? Uh, and then if you want to add more lifestyle aspects to it, you can compound that even more. But so it's logical that, you know, that if you're just looking at one pixel, yeah, the effect is not, not going to be as, as impactful as if you're looking at the entire dietary pattern. If you compare somebody mm -hmm. a really clean diet, Mediterranean diet to somebody eating just the, the worst standard American diet, for a long time, yeah, you're gonna see some dramatic differences with the population. But if you're just looking at everything matched, and this goes back to this idea of reductionism, right? Which is how scientists a lot of times will, will ask the questions. And there's there's a reason for that, and it's 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 not it's not wrong to do it. But you, we have to keep in, in our in our minds that you are asking a very specific question. What is the effect of this one pixel in the diet? Yeah, you wouldn't expect that to be a tenfold difference in, in cancer rates. If you're looking at 
5% of the diet, right? Uh, the, other, the, other, the other questions that are contrast of exposure, like how different is the intake? A lot of times in these studies, depending on the populations, you're looking at relatively small differences. Mm -hmm. And so you wouldn't expect to see a big difference also if you compare somebody who smokes 10 cigarettes to someone who smokes 12 cigarettes a day, you don't expect to see a hundred, a huge difference in, uh, in, in mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's the same, the same logic. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a valid point. It's something to think about, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really hold and it doesn't really apply to nutrition as a field. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point. You're essentially, you're saying, you know, that the, the degree to which that risk is meaningful is somewhat dictated by the degree to how, how different um, their someone's diet is. And if we're just talking about one little component, then we need to think about that risk in the context of cumulative risk and making lots of little changes to someone's diet. What is then the overall change in relative risk, which then comes back to your point of looking at more dietary pattern levels and comparing those. The other, the other qualifier there is that uh, this idea of, of relative risk to absolute risk, that's going to hinge on the base rate of the disease. So if you're talking about a disease that is very common, like cardiovascular disease and um, atherosclerosis, usually the relative risks will actually reflect large absolute risks, particularly if you're looking over, over the lifetime. But if it's something that's less common, you know, if it's like black mm -hmm. cancer, even if you see a, a 50% reduction, the absolute uh, risk reduction is not going to be impressive. But that's, that's, that depends on how prevalent the disease is. It's not a measure mm -hmm. of the effectiveness of the, in, of the intervention. Mm -hmm. We just have to be, all of these approaches are valid and have a place we just have to understand what we're saying and understand what we're applying. Okay. Okay. So speaking of of applying from here, what I'd like to do, if it's cool with you, is go through a few of the topics that we often see on social media. You've kind of spoken to a couple of them already, where uh, people seem to arrive at a, you know rather confidently at very different conclusions. Uh, and we'll put this sort of framework, the three P's, um, into action. Three of these examples that I'd like to go through are, are specific to foods or categories of foods, cooking oils, red meat, and eggs. And then the fourth is cholesterol levels and the relationship between cholesterol in our blood and cardiovascular disease, which is, of course, always a, a hot topic, especially on Twitter. We're not going to uh, have any... After we go through all of this, <laughs> we're going yeah. to solve everybody. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, let's see how we go. Let's, let's start with oils here. And you have spoken a little bit, so we can kind of uh, go as, as, as kind of as deep as you want to here or, or uh, as surface level as you, as you would prefer. Every day online, we see people suggesting that all cooking oils should be avoided or at least that seed oils should be avoided. Uh, I'd love to just know first uh, your your view of cooking of cooking oils. If if someone said to you, Gil, uh, if I cook with oil, is it going to harm my health? What would you say? Depends on the oil, but uh, um, I th 
usually I see this, this, this question of the oil. The claim is usually broader, is that seed oils are toxic, period. Now, sometimes now we're seeing this narrower, this more specific claim that it's just when you heat it up. And I think that's good news because that's usually that's the that's the progression that usually that's a natural progression. Uh, the idea first pops up is very general, and then as people share more and more data that seems to go against that, that belief tends to get narrow and, and more specific. Um, so, but I still the vast majority of the time I still see the, the belief and the claim is that seed oils are toxic. Period even un unheated, even just consuming them as a salad dressing. And by the way, to be fair, uh, I think this there's a pattern. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is about oil, but every dietary quote-unquote camp seems to have a pet peeve with oil. And we've seen this historically. It used to be the whole food plant-based low-fat camp that had this thing headed out for olive oil. And olive oil, you'd hear people say olive oil causes heart disease. And that has seems to have gone away a little bit. I hear that a lot less. And now it seems to have transferred over to more the low carb, high animal animal food uh, origin foods with with these the seed oils, the the liquid oils, but they sort of leave out the olive oil. And I couldn't tell you where these beliefs start, but once they start, there seems to be they seem to spread like wildfire. And I, there's like a snowball effect, and and now and I, I now got to have people daily, very and they mean it. You can tell they're genuine, um, very emotional, very um, very strong, deeply held belief that these oils are nasty, that they underlie every disease of the Western world, and so um, okay, let let's go. Let's question. Go. Yeah, Quick, a little question. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, you know. Do you feel like sometimes the the reason that this can become emotional is that um, we all love to feel a part of a community and these communities have certain views that are widely held within them and can be held by leaders and it can challenge our identity if we come across information that is directly challenging one of these very strongly held views from within that community that our fellow community members also hold. I think it's absolutely at least a part of it. It's not, if not the main factor, uh, I absolutely see this people, it, this, this no longer becomes an opinion or something that they're looking for. It becomes exactly, as you said, a part of their identity because when you question it, even if you if you're not taking it per, if you're not doing a per, uh, you know carrying out a personal attack you're not um, it's not an ad hominem and it's nothing like that you're just sharing evidence that goes against that belief you can tell that they are um, it's personal to them they're very emotionally invested in this belief uh, so I have no doubt that that there that's a factor that the the be, the belonging to these communities becomes a stronger factor. And again, every I see this with every diatribe, uh, the belonging to that community and the aligning with the values and the beliefs becomes almost more important than the actual uh, behaviors and the actual, um, the, the, the facts or the evidence that may underlie these beliefs. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's clearly mm -hmm. a part of the equation. 
So if we walk through your framework that you've outlined and and we think about oils, uh, what what do we find and where where is it um, where do you think uh, those that are taking a position that seed oils are toxic are perhaps going wrong? Um, other than the identity side of things, if they are looking at the evidence and are confused by the evidence, where are they perhaps getting a little tripped up? So to go with the, the order that those P's, the first one is proof. A lot of times uh, when I ask people for more background on why they, they hold this belief, they will give us some of the examples that we gave initially. So they'll, they'll bring up an anecdote. We already touched on that. Mm-hmm. They don't all process foods and so Seed oils in the processed food must be the, the, the culprit. Another one I see a lot is this appeal to nature. The idea that because they're not natural, and this, this also applies to olive oil for people who, um, you, know, mm-hmm. you know, that olive oil is also not beneficial. There is this general belief that foods that are natural are good and foods that are processed are bad. Of course, there's a nugget of truth to that, and there is a trend, but there's just too many exceptions. There's a lot of things that are natural that are horrible and even lethal. And there's a tons of tons, tons of things that are at least lightly processed that are not that are, are, are somewhat artificial that have good health outcomes. So the heuristic, although I understand having that rule of thumb, it just doesn't work when you apply it rigidly to every question. Um, mm-hmm. um, some of the things, the storytelling rather than compelling evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess the 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 degree of processing could be enough to to kind of uh, raise an alarm, so to speak, and get you to to go and look for for more evidence. But as you say, it's not an it's not enough on its own to put a line through a food and and say that it is inherently harmful because it is processed. Well, must be the processing may, must make it unhealthy. Uh, one argument I, I've heard uh, is that. Oils are the fat equivalent of refined sugar. So with refined sugar, what you're doing is you're taking a plant and you're excluding the fiber and you're excluding all these wonderful nutrients and you're just taking the the pure refined carbohydrate. And that with oil, you're doing the same thing. You're excluding the fiber and all these other things and you're just exclu- uh, taking the fat fraction, the lipid fraction. But that doesn't fall. Fo- it doesn't follow from that that it's harmful. You could theoretically extract the fat fraction out of a food and it could remain just as healthy as the original. It could make it worse or it could make it better. Mm. If, for example, hypothetically speaking, if the the fat fraction is a health promoting fraction of that initial food, if, if we had, I don't know, take, take almonds or whatever you want, right? Soybean, Mm -hmm. if the fat fraction is health promoting and if you're purifying, purifying it, you could end up with a more powerful health promoting food. And if some of the other components are either neutral or negative, even if the net effect is positive, by purifying the positive and getting rid of the neutrals, you could end up with a, with a healthier food. So the mm-hmm. reason why purifying or excluding must derive an inferior product, there's no short, there's no real um, alternative to than to look at the outcome evidence, at the actual health effects of consuming the food. Now, if we had no data, if we had, if no experiment had ever been conducted on people eating olive oil or safflower oil, yeah, if we had to go with these 
um, with these guesses, well, our ancestors didn't eat it well, it's processed, so maybe let's not risk it. I can see the, the appeal. Mm-hmm. We have hundreds of studies pointing in the opposite direction. That just makes no sense to replace those with a speculation based on it's processed, it's not natural. Uh, so maybe I should go over just briefly um, the mm-hmm. we do have. So for, for olive oil, real quick, uh, we'll start with the epidemiology. We'll go to the uh, RCTs. There's lots of epidemiological evidence over the years pointing to, to benefit. Just to cite very recent ones, there's two large analyses from the Harvard School of Public Health that came out in 2020 and 2021. They're kind of complementary. And they came out in the Journal of American College of Cardiology, Jack for people who want to look it up. Basically, across the board, intake of olive oil associated with less cardiovascular disease, lower inflammatory markers, less mortality, including all-cause mortality. And interestingly, they didn't see a statistically significant difference in the substitution analysis between olive oil and other plant oils, so these quote-unquote seed oils, suggesting that their their effect on health is about about, uh, similar. Uh, then randomized control trials. We have a plethora of randomized control trials doing isocaloric substitutions and looking at uh, lipid levels of cholesterol, uh, looking at um, metrics of glucose metabolism. In general, you see an improvement, particularly if you're comparing the olive oil to concentrated sources of saturated fat. Then we have randomized control trials looking at outcomes. So we talked about Lyon. In Lyon, the main source of fat was olive oil and canola oil. And they saw the 50 to 70% reduction in cardiovascular disease. How do you reconcile that? It's like we said, it's a change in more than one factor. But how do you reconcile a massive reduction of cardiovascular disease with these oils causing cardiovascular disease? It's just very difficult to reconcile the two. Uh, You'd have to take the position that the rest of the diet was so beneficial that it offset any negative benefits of the oils. Um, but the other thing that comes up there, Gil, and sorry to interrupt your train of thought here, is is in this one I see more from the whole food plant based community is hey Gil, I'm I'm hearing you that these studies are showing uh, improved health outcomes with greater consumption of olive oil, and you, you speak to the randomized controlled trial, the Leon study, but compared to what? And would a diet be healthier if those fats were coming from whole foods like olives themselves or nuts and seeds? Well, lucky for us, Lyon is not the only randomized control trial that looked at this question. Predimed was a similar experiment, except they had two intervention arms. They had the high olive oil and the high nuts, right? And then they had a control group that was low fat. And both the olive oil and the high nuts groups had roughly similar 30% reduction in CVD. So again, I'm not saying it's a perfect experiment. I'm saying how do you, I mean, it, it suggests at face, at face that the two are about equally health promoting. Um, for other studies, we're, t- we're talking about the RCTs because these look at outcomes. So they're at the top of the pyramid, but there are other studies that look at substitutions and just markers. And I've never seen clear, consistent evidence of superiority of, uh, of, of a whole form of fat over these, these oils. Now, obviously, oil is optional. It's not an essential food. So if you prefer to eat, you know, 
almonds and avocados. I don't see a problem with that. That's fine. Personal preference. Or if you say, I'll just play it safe and I'll do this. Fine. But we don't have to get to the point where we're making pseudoscientific st statements that oil is toxic. And, you know, if you eat oil, it's going to damage your health. That's not based on evidence. So the evidence doesn't dictate behavior. You take it or leave it. You do with it what you want. And you can have a, a healthy dietary pattern with or without oil. What if someone is thinking, well, you know, I've read uh, Dean Ornish's study or Dr. Esselstyn's study, and those diets were oil-free. Isn't that evidence that excluding the oil is going to be the better path forward for, for someone, particularly with cardiovascular disease? Oh, because they didn't compare that to a group with oil. So we don't know. We know that they had good, good results with those, with those diets. Um, those diets had plenty of things going for them, right? So it shows that you can get some good, uh, particularly the Ornish study shows that you can get some good results with that type of diet. Uh, the Esselstyn trial, it's not a trial, it's a, a report. Mm -hmm. It's harder to interpret because there's no, there's no control group per se. Mm -hmm. um, certainly those diets have a lot, a lot going for them. They are devoid of junk food, of ultra-processed foods. They are rich in fruits and vegetables. Uh, you know, they are not crazy high in uh, uh, saturated fat and salt, added salt and added sugars or alcohol. So they check most of the boxes. What we can't do is make a statement about the health value of oil with a trial that doesn't test the effect of oil. It's just not informative for that particular purpose. So it's possible that yeah. oil, it's theoretically possible that adding oil to that diet would make it worse or that it would be a lateral move or that it would make it better. Maybe mm. get even more spectacular results with mm -hmm. the oil. I don't know for a fact, based on everything we have, I would guess that it would either be a lateral move, not much difference. Um, in some people, it might benefit them if, depending on what it replaces. Uh, the the unsaturated fats and some of the substitution analysis have a strong beneficial effect, a stronger effect than some of the forms of whole carbohydrate, depending on the outcome and depending on the study. Uh, so, but my guess would be you wouldn't see a big difference. So why is it that you you think, I guess, mechanistically that some people do hold the view of, you know, based on what you just said then, and, and I agree with your position on that, um, why is it that some people do hold the view that, well, from a mechanistic point of view, uh, these oils uh, seem to be or may be affecting endothelial cell function and, and therefore cardiovascular health. So I think it's the, the, best, the best approach here is to proceed with caution. Where has that idea come from? There, is, there are some, some studies, namely some postprandial studies looking at uh, flow-mediated dilation, right, FMD, this measure of um, function of the artery wall. Now, I don't know to what extent people are rooting their belief on that, on those findings, versus how much is back rationalization from the belief to then uh, producing these data when asked for evidence. But leaving that aside, that's a, that's a very, very, very weak evidence. That's mechanistic evidence. We just thought we talked about the pyramid. That mm -hmm. would be um, close to the bottom. In fact, there are many changes. There are some forms of exercise that uh, acutely cause a deterioration of flow-mediated dilation. 
phases of sleep cause a, a deterioration of flow dilation. In some studies, sexual activity causes FMD to go down. So mm-hmm. here is that they are, they are acute changes, postprandial or post-activity, that don't necessarily reflect um, the long-term uh, elasticity of the, of the artery wall or, or cardiovascular function as a whole. And in fact, there are some, some meta-analyses of RCTs showing that people who, when you introduce olive oil, their long-term FMD actually tends to improve. So I think the caution here, and this is a, a great example of not being confused, of not dismissing pockets of evidence, but of looking at that in the context of everything we know. And when that happens, when you take a step back and someone tells you, okay, after you eat olive oil, your FMD, by the way, this might also depend on the type of olive oil. Extra virgin might not have this function. There are some some data that suggests that. But um, based on this pocket of evidence, then taking the step back and looking at everything we know, how relevant is this? Is this, does this reflect long-term data, the long-term physiology? Does this reflect actual outcomes? Even if FMD was a reproducible effect, a deterioration of short-term or even long-term FMD after Mm. olive oil, and this was really robust and reproducible and specific to olive oil, none of those things check out. But even if we had all of that, you still have the the good outcomes. Mm. You still have lower Mm -hmm. cardiovascular risk. You can't you can't get around. Yeah. One thing's too big. It's a it's a giant leap to kind of make, and you have to dismiss a lot of evidence to get there. Another one that I've heard that's a quite a good example, or I think it's a good example. Uh, love to know your thoughts on this. Is that speaks to kind of acute changes, not always reflecting chronic changes and and overall risk. Is changes in blood pressure during exercise, mm. and if you so just if someone exercised and you just were looking at their blood pressure and it was going up, you, without looking at any other evidence, but understanding the mechanisms of cardiovascular disease, you might come to the conclusion that exercise is actually harmful for cardiovascular disease. When in fact, we know that exercise reduces overall risk of cardiovascular disease. So the, I think the overarching point with all these, that's a perfect example. The overarching point is that we shouldn't assume that Isolated observations reflect the systemic effect of a food or a intervention of any kind, right? And this is mm-hmm. a, an extremely common misunderstanding. People will point to, um, you know, a component of the food that in a lab experiment thrown on cells in cell culture has a detrimental effect. And they'll say, therefore, this food is, is toxic. Well, you're mm-hmm. taking a massive logical leap from the effect of a single nutrient, isolated and concentrated ex vivo on cell culture to uh, speculating what the, the the global effect of the food in a living, breathing human in a systemic manner is going to be. And those leaps more often than not don't pan out. That's why mechanistic evidence has to be taken is, with a is, huge grain of salt. Is, is that where the these kind of ideas that uh, polyunsaturated fats are unstable and easily oxidized and, and cause inflammation. I see this quite a bit. This is probably more the sort of rhetoric in the, the seed oil uh, or the anti-seed oil uh, community. Is that where that comes from, this idea of 
of these unsaturated fats um, easily oxidizing and oxidizing LDL particles um, as, a, as a sort of way of trying to explain why these are harmful? Yes, mainly that's, that's coming from, from mechanistic evidence. Um, and there is some evidence uh, that indicates that if you, for example, if you deep fry the oils, like I was reading this paper the other day, deep frying an oil like 20 times repeatedly, and then you observe some increase in the inflammatory markers. So uh, it's, it's, it's not that we're saying that mechanistic evidence is irrelevant. We're saying you have to look at it in the context of everything else and realize that if you have an outcome-based uh, experiment that points in the opposite direction. There's no way to to put to you know to, you can't it supersedes the mechanistic evidence. You can't just um, run with with this biochemical pathway. The inflammation is another big one. Um, seed oils are inflammatory based on a supposition that well it's it's a fact that uh, uh, omega sixes will generally uh, activate. A, a, a pathway that has some inflammatory role. So we'll increase, at least in, in theory and in vitro, we'll increase the production of, of arachidonic acid and that will increase the, the production of uh, the synthesis of some pro-inflammatory factors. The problem is that can be correct. And then when you look at the systemic effect in the individuals and in living, breathing humans, you can have many other effects of the food that make up for it. Mm-hmm. Turns out that effect doesn't even pan out very well either. So although this is observed ex vivo, then when you look at people consuming uh, linoleic acid, the, the, the most common uh, omega-6, uh, there's little to no variation in arachidonic acid, even when you vary linoleic acid by like several fold. So it seems that the production of arachidonic acid is fairly constant and is not influenced at that much. But also there's other levels of complication where the same pathway also in- also leads to the biosynthesis of factors that are anti-inflammatory, right? So the the whole, the the bottom line here is you have to be very careful with the logical leap because uh, we are trying to, we are trying to uh, guess what the the full picture is by looking at one pixel, right? You can look at a pixel that is is white and you can say that pixel is white and I'm 100% certain of that. And if you're only looking at that pixel, you're going to be misled as to the full picture and what the color is, right? So we can't say the picture is white because I've looked at a pixel and it's definitely white. And that's what, what we're seeing with these logical leaps with the mechanistic data. Mm-hmm. Have to be able to zoom zoom out a little bit. The, the next question I have here before we move on to uh, red meat, which we might tackle next. Uh, and I think this speaks to the third P the preponderance of, of evidence. Sometimes when uh, I see people talking about the harms of seed oils and polyunsaturated fats in particular, I see them point to a few single randomized controlled trials like the Minnesota coronary experiment or the Sydney diet heart study. And these, these are randomized controlled trials. As you mentioned before, people see these as the, the gold standard so if someone was working through the evidence, they might come across this and then be very quickly confused um, and, and, and find it difficult to kind of 
form a, a, a position with so much contradictory evidence. You spoke just before about the Leon um, heart study, which came to uh, different findings to these two randomized controlled trials that I'm mentioning here. Um, what would you what would you like people to understand kind of about these trials and and I guess this is just one example, um, but how does this come back to you know th- evaluating evidence overall? So there's two approaches to that. One is more specific, and it's to look at the specific methodology of those trials and the shortcomings that explain those results. But I would I would just talk about the exact same process that we've been uh, reiterating throughout this whole conversation, which is to step back and look at all of the evidence. And when you do that, and you look at large meta-analyses of all the available trials that did substitutions of saturated fat for other foods, you see that the overall effect is towards benefit of replacing saturated fat with more unsaturated forms of fat. And for example, if you look at the Cochrane meta-analysis of 2020, there are, I believe, 15 RCTs meta-analyzed, and the trend is towards benefit. And then you see that Sydney is a complete outlier. It points in the opposite direction. So this observation alone doesn't explain why that is. It doesn't prove that Sydney is wrong. It could Sydney could be right and everything else could be wrong. But the minute you step back from just knowing about Sydney because that's what you heard online somewhere, and mm-hmm. that that's the totality of the evidence, and that scientists are clueless to stepping back and seeing this full picture with 14 out of 15 trials either being non-significant or beneficial, and then the one trial you were shown pointing in the opposite direction, that's a completely different reality. Right there, mm-hmm. that's a completely, that's an important epiphany, right? Then if you want to understand why it's an outlier, then you can go into the, the, these details. Um, Sydney is one of the few trials where people were advised to replace the saturated fat with foods that contained a pretty high content of trans fats. Not because the trial was sloppy, but because this was conducted in the 60s and the, and the 70s, where this wasn't understood. Now we understand that when you replace saturated fat with trans fats, it actually tends to worsen cardiovascular outcomes. So in light of all this, it's an outlier. It's one of the few trials where people were told to eat a food that is rich in trans fats instead of saturated fat. It makes sense. Now, even knowing that, we don't dismiss Sydney. We don't go, okay, pretend that doesn't exist. No, what we do is include it in the totality of the evidence. When we look at the full picture, include it in the meta-analyses. That's what the Cochrane did. They didn't rule it out because of these methodological issues. It should also be pointed out that there are concerns about trans fats in any in many of the other trials of the uh, Oslo and others, right? Sydney is not the only one that has concern around around trans fats, um, although it is the, the only one that told people to go eat a food that has that had, that was rich in trans fats. Uh, but so you look at everything, you put the the the, the, the studies together, and you look at the full picture. Uh, preponderance, the, the last B, right, the third B. Mm-hmm. Minnesota is generally similar, but Minnesota was basically, it's even more obvious because Minnesota was well-designed in general, but then the the policies nationwide changed, and these were inpatients at a mental hospital. So it had a lot of potential because you have people living in the facility and being fed whatever you're serving. You have a lot of potential for for rigor, 
the problem is the policies changed and a lot of these patients were, um, were, uh, went home. They were no longer inpatients at the mental hospital. They were discharged. And so the trial, the, the trial ended. The trial was aborted. Mm -hmm. aborted. Mm -hmm. Investigators didn't, didn't even publish the data. Uh, so the, the vast majority of the, of the outcomes are not significant. Uh, it, was, it was projected to last, uh, it was either three and a half or four years around there, the full follow-up. And the average follow-up was 13 months. When, when they had to pull the plug and abort the study. So the fact that you see non-significant um, outcomes is precisely what you would predict from a study that is aborted a third of the way in, right? That's not surprising. It's not, it's not confusing. Um, and then there are other issues. There are many technical issues with, the, with Minnesota, but, but I mean, that's, that would be the main one. Yeah, that's probably a, a podcast in itself. And I think uh, Alan Flanagan, he was on the show previously. I think he may have, have spoken about a, a few of those. Just to to, to sort of uh, tie a bow in oils, um, what are your recommendations? Someone listening now, listen to all of that and is is thinking, well, yeah, I would you know like to include some oils in my diet. Are there particular oils you like uh, people to to focus on? Uh, I'm 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 usually conservative on the recommendations. I like to discuss the evidence. I like to show people the evidence, and then I like to let people make their own decisions based on the on on the evidence that we've mm -hmm. discussed. Um, but I don't see evidence of clear superiority, and I've looked at this, uh, you know, actively looked at this. I don't see evidence of clear superiority of olive oil over seed oils, of seed oils over olive oil, of whole forms over over these purified forms. So my recommendation would be. Do what you like and what you, the best diet is the diet that you can sustain over the long term and that supports your long term health. So under this umbrella of a health promoting dietary pattern, there's enormous flexibility. If you really enjoy, enjoy olive oil, I would never tell you to, to not eat it. If you enjoy canola oil, I would never tell you to not eat that. If you don't, if you prefer to leave those aside and prefer almonds and avocado and olives, and uh, yeah, I would never tell you to go put some oil into your diet. I don't think there's there's evidence to back that up. So um, there's a lot of wiggle room. There's a, I don't think there's a clear uh, a clear recommendation towards towards one of those options. I think they're all mm -hmm. as far as we can tell. One could be better, but it's not obvious from the available evidence. Mm -hmm. And from your view, are there any circumstances where you do feel that exclusion of oil is beneficial? Um, I wouldn't say exclusion, but I would say that the, the caloric density of the oil, uh, the caloric density of any type of purified fat is obviously higher than the caloric density of most foods. Now, this is sometimes used as an argument to tell everybody that, that they should avoid oil, oil and that oil is a harmful food. I disagree with that. I think I agree, however, that that is a factor to bear in mind as you design your strategy. So for some people, reducing the amount of oil is definitely going to help them maintain a healthy body weight or, or lose some, some or trim down. But for other people, some people lose weight on a diet that is high in fat and high in oils. So it's all about the total amount of calories. And if your strategy, if, if a diet high in in fats with oil helps you stay at reasonable calories, then that's the right diet for you. 
And if a diet that is lower in oils and more moderate, because if you have the oils, you go overboard and you eat too many calories, then a, a, the right diet for you might be moderate or even absent in oils. So uh, I don't think there's an absolute there. I think it's impossible to mm -hmm. absolute rule that is that is accurate and evidence-based. Mm. Although some, sometimes the uh, absolutes are a little more sexy. Oh, they might make the, he the headlines <laughs> a little more often. <laughs> yeah, a, lot, a lot stickier. It's, uh, it's easier to remember. I know all that. Uh, this is this yeah. ongoing conversation with the YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, but, but I mean, I'm always going to tell people what I see in the evidence. If I change my mind, I'll tell mm -hmm. people. If it's not the sexiest message, I don't really care. Um, if it doesn't make a lot of friends, I got enough friends in real life. Um, the whole, I mean, aside, the reason I started the videos is that there was too much, uh, diet content on the internet and not enough nutrition content. And mm -hmm. What I wanted to do, I wanted to make videos that just told people what the diet, the, the, what the evidence was and didn't push them to do, to do low fat or low carb or to do, you know, intermediate fat. Just show people the, the data and let them make their decisions. I think that's this is mm -hmm. crucial in scientific communication. I could be wrong, but this is this is my approach. Treat people like adults, discuss the facts, and let them make the decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm certainly with you on that. That's what I uh, I really appreciate about your approach. Let's move on from cooking oils. Uh, I should about... real quick, since you you mentioned cooking because that this is this is important. Uh, some people do make this distinction that maybe seed oils are fine, um, but it's when you cook them that you that you run into an issue. And I've looked specifically into that, and there's a lot less studies that specifically look at heated oil. But the ones I found, and I was just looking at some this week, the ones I found again uh, consistently point to benefit even of of oils, seed oils used for cooking. There are some Chinese cohorts uh, looking at a bunch of these oils used for stir frying and deep frying, and they still point to lower all-cause mortality and uh, and just 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 better outcomes, particularly when when compared to the more animal-based, like lard, which is another yeah. common uh, cooking uh, fat in in these parts of China. So I'm open to 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 this to this, all of this being wrong, but I just all the evidence I see points in the same direction. And I keep asking people and I never get a cogent argument to back up these beliefs. So, so mm -hmm. okay, beautifully put. What about red meat? This is a, another very polarizing topic on, on one hand, <laughs> on, on one, I'm throwing you in the deep end here and I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, Degrees on this one. It's not. No, there's no. There's no discussion. No arguments and fights over this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on on one hand, you have the the World Health Organization and their position on red meat and cancer, and there are various studies associating red meat with cardiovascular disease. And on the other hand, various studies suggesting that this science is weak, or reviews suggesting that this science is weak, and that red meat has been unfairly vilified. 
and that in fact it's it's not red meat that's to blame for rises in in chronic disease, cardiovascular disease, cancer, etc. But it's the increased consumption of ultra processed foods and industrial seed oils. I'd love to know what your top line thoughts are about red meat, and then let's walk through uh, where you think some of this confusion lies. So I think there's several aspects to this, but um, first. The- Briefly, let's touch on this idea that there are many studies and studies to back up every every opinion, right? Um, that's true. You can find a study to back up almost any view, but that doesn't mean that the science is, is, um, is unclear. It doesn't mean that the experts are confused. What it means is that we don't derive overarching scientific conclusions from individual studies. We look at totality of evidence. This is a crucial mindset shift. So... When you look at the totality of the evidence, you see that neither of the artificially polarized opinions on meat is evidence-based. You'll hear people saying, red meat is toxic. You know, it doesn't matter how much. It doesn't matter what, what else you're eating. If you're eating any red meat, you're, you're damaging your health. And you'll also see people saying, this is all vegan propaganda. And red meat is, is just a healthy a health food period, no matter how much you eat. No matter what else you're doing, it's good for you or at least neutral for you. Neither of those positions is really uh, can be justified based on the evidence. What we see fairly consistently is that there is a threshold of effect, uh, particularly with CVD and with cancer, with colorectal cancer. And that threshold seems to be around 100 grams per day average consumption, average intake. So usually when you look at studies, comparing people, say, eating 20 grams a day average to people eating 60 grams a day. You don't see much mm-hmm. much difference there. You see this, for example, with studies from Asia, from Japan, right? And so when people, understandably, when people look at this and go, see, in this study, the, the people that ate the most red meat didn't have more disease. So this whole story is, is just mm-hmm. a lie. You have to look at the details, right? You have to look at what... Mm-hmm different pieces of information fit together. Okay, that's a study looking at low, very low compared to a bit less low consumption. Then you look at studies that cross that threshold, say people consuming eh, 50 grams a day average to people consuming 150 grams a day average. And there you tend to see uh, the the difference in outcomes with a higher Mm -hmm. rate of CVD and a higher rate of colorectal cancer with the highest intake. That's such an important point is if if we're talking about a certain food or an exposure, what is the contrast in that study between the two groups? Because as you're you're speaking to here, if that contrast is not sufficient, uh, because high and low can mean many different things in different studies, right? Um, it's relative. They're relative to one another. And you you spoke earlier about cigarettes, but just to kind of uh, use that as another example here, that would be like perhaps looking at a population of smokers and comparing those who smoke seven cigarettes a day to nine. And if you didn't find a significant difference, you may you know, from that study, if you're not looking at the totality of the evidence, you may be inclined to think that smoking is not increasing risk. And it's, it's you, when you look at things with that information in mind, you realize that studies that are seemingly contradictory really aren't. 
there is no contradiction, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody just, they're just different studies, different ranges. It's not a contradiction at face value. It seems like it is. Here's a study where mm-hmm. eating more red meat had more disease. And here's a study where they didn't contradiction. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the full information, there is no, no inherent contradiction. It, it's just a different range of intake. Um, I, think I think that's because there's this idea, this very sort of binary view of foods, good or bad, and there's not that appreciation for threshold. Yep. And linear effect. Absolutely. I, I mean, we see this with everything. We see this with cholesterol. Uh, you know, if cholesterol is bad, how come nature put it in our bodies? It's not that it's bad. It's when it's too high that it raises risk of disease, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's very understandable. We think we see this with the vaccines too. Oh, if, if if someone who's vaccinated can get the the virus, then the vaccines don't work. It's an oversimplification of something that could be a rate. You could be ten times less likely to get to get the virus. The vaccine could be working amazingly, and yet you can find people who have who are vaccinated who get it. The fact that you find exceptions doesn't mean the thing doesn't work. It's because we have this tendency. Uh, of of oversimplifying into all or nothing, black and white. Mm -hmm. And the effect in our minds, the effect is supposed to be linear. The more you eat, the higher the the rate of disease. And sometimes you see that, but sometimes you don't. With cholesterol, that's another common one, right? It's a plateau at a fairly low range. And so that confuses a lot of people. Dietary cholesterol. Dietary cholesterol. Does eating cholesterol raise your serum cholesterol or not? People can't get a straight answer. People are pulling their hair out over this because the the effect isn't linear. It's extremely confusing. But once you show somebody the graph once, Mm -hmm. the linear phase, and then there's a plateau. And so if you're looking at the phase of the plateau, you can vary the dietary cholesterol all you want. You're going to see very different, Mm -hmm. very little difference in serum levels. And if you're in the Mm -hmm. linear range, the opposite happens, right? So... So the key here is not to know all these facts by heart. The key is just to to realize that when you step back and you look at the full picture, uh, things that are seemingly contradictory a lot of times are not. And in fact, they show you how things work. They are different pieces of the puzzle that fit together to show you the full picture. You kind of expect people, Guild, to to get into these studies and look at the Asian cohorts and the American cohorts and and look at the amount of grams of red meat that each group is comparing and try and make sense of this? Or do you think this is where guidelines become important and, and sort of reviews of the evidence that other people have performed? I think there's a place for everything. There are people who will go the extra mile. I have viewers in my channel, on my child that are, that are that are not scientists, but they are incredibly diligent and curious, and they will fact check. And I love them because they will fact check my videos, and they'll say, "Hey, you said something over there. Isn't that really?" And they'll they'll go to the study, right? And I'll go, and sometimes I'll yeah, I'll, I have to go back and I go, "Okay, yeah, yeah, it is accurate, or you shouldn't have said it that, that, that way." So there are people that will go the extra mile, understandably. A lot of people, probably most people, don't have the time to go read 500 studies to figure out what's for dinner. Mm-hmm. That's They have other things to do. And so there is a place for committees of scientists coming together and giving people the bottom line. There is also a place for people who are trying to do what you and I are doing, which is to bridge those mm-hmm. lines and bridge, really bridge, bridge the evidence with the public. Because a lot of people 
are not satisfied with just being given directives and not being explained why things are the way they are. Mm-hmm. This creates a lot of dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. It generates a lot of, um, of uh, distrust. Mm-hmm. We're just told, we see this with the pandemic as well. When people are just told, here's what you're going to do and not explained why that is, it creates a gap of trust that is then filled. Definitely. Like if, if we take this red meat example, uh, if, if you were simply saying to me, uh, eating, eating red meat is increasing risk of cancer. And then I saw someone else saying the opposite, that wouldn't leave me with enough information to actually make an informed choice. But if I'm sitting here listening to you and you're saying, explaining why there are different findings in the, in the science and you are explaining this threshold and, 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 and how these studies are coming to different findings, that is very empowering. And I can see how, uh, useful that is as a, as a kind of bridge. So that's a great point. I think it's, an, it, it's, uh, it's absolutely indispensable nowadays because people, this isn't our grandparents' generation anymore. People aren't happy just taking orders from some central organization and carrying them out. People want to know, I think people just want to be treated like adults. People want mm-hmm. to be shown the information. People want to be shown what to do. And then they want to be left to make this, this, their own decision. Right, but, they, but in order to make an educated decision, we need to have access to a certain amount of information, to a certain level of information. Otherwise, it's not an informed decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I raised a, a very important question, which, is, which we should touch on, which is this idea of the confounders. Mm-hmm. Everything we've said so far could be just that people who eat more red meat smoke more and exercise less and are more overweight et cetera, et cetera, right? How do we know? What uh, indications do we have that that's not the case? I would point to two lines, and we've already touched on this, the two types of confirmation that we have, the two levels of confirmation. One is within the experimental approach, so within these observational studies, the, um, the multivariate analysis. So when you look at really good cohort studies, really good prospective studies, they will adjust for all these things. They will adjust for BMI. They will adjust for smoking. They will adjust for exercise. Uh, They will adjust for other dietary components. Mm -hmm. If the the, uh, effect survives those statistical adjustments, your confidence level goes up. That it is less likely that it's just that people smoke Mm -hmm. more. And when you say adjust, if someone's hearing that for the first time, uh, essentially what you're saying is that rather than comparing uh, a group of people consuming high amounts of meat with a group of people consuming low amounts of meat, where there is big differences between them in terms of their body weight and how often they exercise, you're removing that. So it's an even playing field. You compare someone who is the same body weight and has the same level of exercise, but has a higher red meat intake versus someone with lower. Is that Sort of. You're statistically asking, and for the technical details, you're going to have to have uh, someone who does, epi- who does epidemiology. <laughs> That's really nerdy, really fast. But the, the, the bottom line is you're asking what part of the effect is mediated by the variation in BMI mm-hmm. versus what part of the effect is mediated by the variation in red meat consumption. And you can do this with, with reasonably um, high degree of confidence. Now, Again, as always, this isn't all or nothing. This 
technique is crucial. It adds a level of confidence to epidemiological studies. Nowadays, no epidemiological study without multivariate analysis would even be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Does it give us 100% certainty? No. Is it possible for confounders to not be completely adjusted for? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, for mm-hmm. some confounders that the investigators didn't think about to be present? Yes. So it's all about degrees of confidence. It's all about you trying to plug as many holes as you can mm-hmm. and move up that ladder of confidence. And so this leads me to the second mechanism of confirmation, which goes beyond just trying to make the epidemiological study as tight as you can. Well, there's an intermediate level, which is to see if it's uh, consistent, right? You see consistency in epidemiological studies, highest quality possible across institutions, across investigators, across populations. But then you go beyond that technique. And just to put this into context, we know that um, red meat raises ApoB, uh, we should probably give people the, the gist on what that is. ApoB is a marker of uh, lipoprotein, of, of a family of lipoproteins that carry cholesterol in the blood, and specifically the atherogenic lipoproteins. So you could think of it as buses carrying passengers. Like cholesterol and other types of fat are uh, transported in our bloodstream by these lipoproteins, these, ves- these vehicles. And a family of those vehicles is labeled by this by this tag called ApoB. And it's that family that is atherogenic, that causes atherosclerosis. Mm-hmm. So we know, uh, and so the, cru- the crux, the, the causal crux for heart disease is not cholesterol as it is often thought, but it is the number, the concentration of these ApoB-carrying lipoproteins in the bloodstream. We can get into the more detail on that if you like, if we have time. But mm-hmm. um, we know that meat, eating meat, red meat, raises ApoB relative to other alternatives that are lower in saturated fat and plant protein, for example. We know that eating saturated fat raises ApoB relative to, for example, unsaturated forms of fat, and red meat is proportionally uh, richer in saturated fat than many of the alternatives. Um, We know that ApoB is causal in cardiovascular disease from a swath of evidence. Um, We know that reducing saturated fat across a specific threshold, and again, if you replace it with a healthier alternative like unsaturated fats, reduces cardiovascular risk. And so when you put all of those findings and in the background of that, you now observe that people who eat more red meat above a certain range also are more likely to have cardiovascular disease. That's a different, a very different context than just an isolated epidemiological observation, right? Mm I mean by looking at looking at all the evidence, and this is what uh, scientists do to 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 arrive at a likely uh, health effect of a food. Again, it's not one hundred percent. Nobody's one hundred percent sure, one hundred percent mathematical that red meat causes cardiovascular disease. Nobody's one hundred percent sure that tobacco causes lung cancer. It's just a very high degree of likelihood based on the consistency consistency of the evidence and the magnitude of effect and all these other factors. And so it's just, it's just degrees of likelihood. It's like stacking the deck in your favor, really. Is what this is doing is you're walking into, into the casino with the, the game slightly stacked in your favor. The more mm-hmm. information you have, the more stacked it is. If you walk in mm-hmm. naive, you're going to lose your money sooner or later, right? 
And the more the more you stack the deck, the more you you uh, favor the more the odds favor you, the better odds of success you have. This is similar. And and what about cancer and the the mechanism, the likely kind of mechanisms there that may explain why there is a, an increased risk of colorectal cancer in particular with red meat consumption? Similar story, right? So you you look at the epidemiology with cancer, it's actually a little harder the causal inference, because with cardiovascular disease, we have all of these other experimental approaches pointing in the same direction. We have these randomized control trials. We have the things looking at saturated fat. We have the markers. With cancer, it's harder. You basically have the two pillars. You have the epidemiological association, and then you have the mechanisms. Uh, the heme iron, the heterocyclic amines, all these components uh, that are thought to, to increase risk of cancer, that are thought to increase uh, mutation uh, rates. Uh, and so it's basic, based on those two that you infer causality. It's the same type of principle. Um, I would, I would say that the, 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 the degree of certainty is a little lower with cancer than with cardiovascular disease. If I had to put a number to it, I would say mm-hmm. that it's a little lower, but in both cases, I think it is, it is overwhelmingly likely that this is the case that, that red meat increases risk. Mm-hmm. The only food that doesn't. This is another source of confusion, right? Sometimes there are other changes in the diet and people look at countries, for example, oh, this country, people eat more meat and yet they live longer. There are other factors that affect health and longevity and even cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. To be confident, you have to isolate the variable as much as you can. Um, so mm-hmm. I think our, our degree of certainty is, is quite high. It's certainly high enough that I'm comfortable making decisions based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, I, and the, the other thing to say is that what experiments haven't been done that could be done? You can't run a, a randomized control trial comparing someone eating nothing but steaks to, com- to someone comparing nothing but beans for 40 years. You can't do that right? in a metabolic ward, isolated from the world, so everything else is controlled. It's not doable. So you're never going to have that level of, of, of an experiment done. So you have to make decisions today. Mm-hmm for dinner based on the evidence you have. Yeah. That that point you make about comparing different populations and some of the issues with that is a really, really good point. And I think it's important one for, to land here is that because there are so many other variables, often when you're looking at a, a, a component of nutrition, it's going to be uh, much more reliable to look at differences within the one population. For example, with Hong Kong, you mentioned there, I would love to know within that population, if you look at high and low red meat consumers who have the same access to public health and live the same lifestyle, is there a difference in health outcomes? You have enough con- contrast of exposure, right? Yeah. 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 That would be a much better question than comparing Hong Kong to a con- to another country mm-hmm. because there are so For many sure. variables. And to tie this back to the hierarchy and to the pyramid, uh, the, the depictions of hierarchy of evidence that show ecological data, that's usually pretty low. Um, it's among the lowest in human data. And it's precisely for this reason, there are too many variables that you can't, you can't really control for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One that, pop, one that pops up quite a bit is the pure study. Uh, and we, we don't need to go into the details, but I, I think some people will be familiar with it. And, and clearly socioeconomic status is, is at play with some of the results there. Uh, pure, to be fair, pure, would rank higher than ecological than these observations of Hong Kong because mm-hmm. Pure is a, an epidemiological study and they do have uh, 
adjustment models, and they do have quintiles of consumption. So it is a rung above epidemi- uh, above ecological data, mm-hmm. above these, these country comparisons. Uh, but yes, it contains some, some concerns regarding yeah, socioeconomic status and, and the, the contrast of exposure with saturated fat as, as, as well. There are some concerns there as well. Um, but yeah. What would you say, Gil, if, if, if someone said, the studies that you're speaking to here about red meat are, are not looking at the type of meat that I eat. If someone eats grass-fed, non-industrial, lean beef, are they immune from these risks that you're talking about here? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, make that that leap. No. Um, the the mechanisms uh, that are the most compelling: saturated fat. I mean, we know causally at this point, both from metabolic ward uh, marker studies from, and, and we have the outcome data, uh, saturated fat is going to be a major determinant of cardiovascular disease in particular. So if the grass-fed meat is leaner, maybe it's better. Otherwise, if it's, if it's the same, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't assume that it's healthier. Um, yeah, th- th- there's no, again, the, the burden of proof is with the person making the claim. And so for me to go for a product that is a variant of a product that has uh, so many, so much data pointing to harm and to believe that that product is now going to be fine, I would need to see evidence that consumption of grass-fed meat specifically is, is neutral or beneficial. Outcome data, uh, I haven't seen it. I've seen some studies with markers and with composition, and actually they are not very promising uh, some of the the markers actually look worse with with the grass fed. Um, it's 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 a very complicated uh, case to make. I would, based on the evidence I've seen, I I would not bet any money that red that grass fed red meat is going to be substantially better outcome wise. Um, mm-hmm. Most probably. So if you care about animal welfare and you're choosing between grass fed and grain fed. A calf of meat, mm-hmm. sure, uh, that might be an argument. Yeah. Probably better for for the animals that uh, mm-hmm. that uh, that the, the way it's raised. It's it's a, it's a bit of storytelling, really. Uh, we don't have compelling mm-hmm. evidence showing better outcomes with uh, with grass fed. Unfortunately, yeah, and 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 there is when it comes to I guess lean meat. There's that study you sort of alluded to, or spoke to earlier. I think it was Bergeron. Et al. that compared the lean red meat with white meat and also with plant protein and the, the lean red meat still uh, relative to plant protein increased APOB. Right. That's the, the Krauss study, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah Krauss was involved in that, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's basically going to be, again, you're, gonna, you're looking at all these different factors that influence uh, an outcome. Even if even if your yeah, your um, if your chicken is is leaner, if you're, let's say you're looking at chicken breast, it's going to be leaner than red meat. And by the way, clearly white meat has better outcomes in the in the evidence overall than red meat. Nobody's denying that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll see people oversimplify and say, "Well, they're all the same." They're clearly not. Red, uh, white meat clearly has better outcomes. So replacing red meat with white meat would be expected overall to be a, a, a net positive. Um, but, but you're still looking at all these moving parts. Does it have less saturated fat? Okay. 
where does it sit in the spectrum? It could be less saturated fat than red meat, but still be more than beans or another, another form of uh, plant protein. Um, cholesterol content would be another one that we briefly touched on. Fiber is another dietary component that will affect your, um, your lipid levels. So it's only when you put all of these together that you get the net effect. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why you see that. Even, even there's, there's a, a study that's really provocative by, uh, by Gardner, Chris Gardner at Stanford. And they look at, a, at two diets that are matched for saturated fat, matched for cholesterol. And then the only difference is that one has more whole plants and the other has more kind of processed plants. And the one with more whole plants still lowered lipids more, cholesterol, mm-hmm. LDL cholesterol. So it's kind of like uh, it's, it's, it's a, a wake-up call that even when the major dietary factors are controlled, you still have other players in the mix. Mm-hmm. The, the, the net effect of a food is what you're looking for. The systemic effect with all the, with all these components, right? The, so a lot of times, the the uh, the the whole is more is more than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. That overall food matrix. Probably good to mention, maybe as a last point, depending on how we're doing on time. Based on this idea of, of the whole whole dietary pattern, above whether there's red meat or not, above whether there's eggs or not whether there's oil or not, the main thing I would like people to take away from this is that the whole dietary pattern is the main concern. Mm -hmm. Entire dietary pattern as a whole is health promoting, whether it includes some red meat or not, whether it includes some eggs or not, whether it includes some dairy or some, even some butter, that's secondary, right? So you want to, because of these discussions, a lot of times, and I think I'm guilty of that as like anybody else, we tend to get super, we go super deep and we forget that it's the, the full picture that counts. Hope that makes sense. Before actually we get to, to I guess, what that overall healthy dietary pattern looks like or can look like and the different kind of variations of it, I do have one last question on red meat. And uh, this is your thoughts on TMAO. This is a, a kind of relatively new, hot, kind of sexy biomarker that we're seeing uh, used or measured in, in a few studies. Um, what do you think about TMAO? Is it, is it uh, uh, involved in the, the development? Is it, is it causal in the development of cardiovascular disease or is it just associating with cardiovascular disease? It's a great example to put through the, the three Ps because when TMAO, the data started coming out, um, 20, you know, the, 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 20, the 2010s, basically, a lot of data was coming out on TMAO and, and sexy data. And it was the, the new kid on, on the block. And TMAO was the new reason why animal foods are harmful. And the vegan community was, you know, in a frenzy over TMAO. It was their, their darling. And it's a good example of something that had a lot of proof, a lot of robust studies shown. But then when you go to the second and the third piece, it was all of it was either mechanistic or observational. TMAO levels correlating with risk, TMAO levels, uh, TMAO doing this and that in, in different surrogate models. And the question is exactly what you asked, is it causal? And when that data came in 2019, if I'm not mistaken, the first genetic studies, the first Mendelian randomization studies came out and they pointed to no causal effect. And to this day, that's all the causal data I've seen with TMAO has points to no 
no causal factor, no causal, no cause and effect. So mm-hmm. it's a really interesting example of when you walk up the ladder, up the pyramid, and sometimes you got to wait. Sometimes the pyramid is missing the top rungs because it's being built, right? It's under construction. With TMEO, that happened. Uh, and then when those top rungs come, they might, you know, change the full picture. That's what happened with TMAO. So my guess is it's a marker, mm-hmm. a marker of other things, but it's not causal. So if you just lower TMAO and don't change the root causes, probably doesn't affect your mm-hmm. cardiovascular risk. That would be my guess based on the causal evidence. A little bit similar to the HDL story then. Okay. Well, I, I, I do want to leave some room, I guess, for a, a future conversation where we can pick up on some of these topics where we've left off. We, we had planned to cover eggs and uh, go deep into cholesterol and cardiovascular disease, but I almost think that that's better carved off as, as, its, as its own uh, episode. Uh, before we do wrap this one up, the dietary pattern, I think... Uh, as you just emphasized there, that is really, really important for people to walk away with uh, from this conversation as interesting as going into all of the weeds is um, and and uh, how informative that is in terms of just being able to make sense of the, the sort of polarizing opinions out there. As interesting as that is, it's great to know, well, next time I'm at the grocery store and when I'm feeding my family, what does this look like? Uh, what do you want to leave people with there? Yeah. So from all the, all the evidence available and from the highest standards of evidence, what we know is that the best, the best diet for humans isn't a diet as, is, as, it's, as the term is normally used on the internet. It's not the, the, the keto diet or the, 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 low, the low fat diet or the paleo diet or the Jenny Craig diet. It's a, a pattern. It's a diet that is rich, dietary pattern that's rich in uh, whole plants, fruits and vegetables, and the the, the 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 different classes of whole plants in general, and that is not very high in ultra processed foods. Crucial. Uh, that's the conducting thread. Everybody will will agree on this. Um, and that is not also excessively high in added purified sugar, salt, saturated fat, and alcohol. And then the same thing will apply to drinks, like pred- predominantly. Uh, water, tea is fine, some coffee is fine, but not crazy on the, su- the sugar-sweetened beverages. Those are, that's the, those are the rules of, th- of thumb. Now, important to say, that's very flexible. There's a lot of wiggle room. That dietary pattern can be molded into a omnivorous diet, into a um, uh, low-carb diet, into a high-carb diet, into a low-fat diet, into an intermediate-fat diet, into an exclusively plant-based diet into a vegetarian diet, into most of these patterns that people talk about online. So there's no contradiction between doing low carb or low fat or high carb or high fat and being and having a, a generally health promoting diet. There's wiggle room, there's flexibility. Beautifully put. Thank you so much, Gil. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. And, and as I said, plenty of scope for us to build on in the future. I'm, I'm guessing a lot of folks listening are going to want to connect with you and listen to more of what you have to say. I certainly um, encourage them to do that. Where's the, the best place or places for them to find you? Uh, 
Uh, YouTube would be the main thing that I'm that I'm currently devoting time to, and it's Nutrition Made Simple is the YouTube channel. Uh, and then on Twitter, uh, it's interesting as well. The conversations tend to get a bit more in depth, and that's uh, Nutrition. So at Nutrition Made S three is my handle. You can find me there, and we have a Facebook page as well. I haven't been putting too much time into that lately, but it's um, if you search Facebook for Nutrition Made Simple, you'll find our page as well. We usually post like the new videos that come up and all that stuff. Amazing. I'll put the uh, the links to that into the show notes. Awesome. Thanks, Gil. Let's, uh, let's do this again soon. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple Podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.